Nets Chat is brought to you by Walters. This Saturday night, Walters is showing the Terrence Crawford versus Sean Porter fight. Seating is first come, first serve. So come early to secure your seats. Enchant at Nationals Park begins next week. And Walters is a great place to grab a bite to eat before and after the event. Reservations can be booked at waltersdc.com slash reservation. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Gray sets. Here's the pitch. Breaking ball hit high and deep to right. Soto back and watching. This is going, going, and gone goodbye. Into the Nationals' bullpen, lands on the pitcher's bounds as Bryce Harper gets a hold of a curveball from Josiah Gray. And it's his seventh home run in 16 games against the Nationals. His 26th of the year, RBI 60 and 61. And the Phillies are on top here in the first with one out. It's Philadelphia 2 and Washington nothing. Bryce, mm. congratulations. The 2021 National League Most Valuable Player. I see that you are emotional. What is going through your mind as you've just won your second MVP? Uh, man, I'm just uh, I'm overwhelmed for sure. You know, I'm uh, very excited. Um, I got so many people to thank. You know, of course, my family and my wife. You know, this year was tough. You know, starting off you know, getting hit in the face. It was definitely a tough couple days for me. Tough couple weeks for me trying to get back. And welcome to Nats Chat for Friday, November 19th, 2021, episode two of our off-season episodes. We are coming to you shortly after the announcements of the MVP award recipients for the 2021 season. And we have a lot to talk about, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We will be discussing Bryce Harper winning National League MVP and not Juan Soto. We will be discussing Scott Boris's and Mike Rizzo's comments at the general manager's meetings about the Soto contract situation. We will be discussing the many recent changes to the Nationals organization, especially those in terms of player development. And we will be discussing the looming CBA Armageddon. Current CBA will expire at the end of the day on December 1st, right before midnight December 2nd. Nobody has any optimism that we'll be avoiding a lockout. Maybe MLB and the MLBPA just need to listen to some episodes of the Nats Chat podcast. You know, we can bring the two sides together, Mark. Maybe you and I are the key to preserving labor peace in MLB. We can have some differing views on some things, but still come together and find some consensus and agree to disagree at times. And in the end, come through with something that hopefully pleases everyone, right? 
Absolutely. Look to the podcast. If nothing else, look to the podcast for guidance. Or the cookie. If the podcast doesn't work, look to the cookie. If people would only look to the cookie, all our problems would be solved. Good to talk to you. Good to see you again after a while. It's nice to see you. Uh, I've been reading you, as I know many people listening have been reading you at MassInSports.com. We'll be getting to what you had to say about your voting for the National League Cy Young Award. But we do have the voting for the National League MVP Award that is complete. And I don't think it's a surprise Bryce Harper ends up winning this thing. I was hoping that Juan Soto would win it. There was a case to be made for Juan Soto. But ultimately, I think it was a difficult battle for him. 30 first place votes. Bryce Harper ends up getting 17 of the 30 first place votes. Soto gets six of the 30 first place votes. Soto came in second. Fernando Tatis Jr. came in third. Trey Turner, in case you're curious, got one of the 30 first place votes. You know, it was a kind of thing where if you wanted to make the argument for Soto, you could. It really depends on your criteria and kind of how you want to do this thing. But Bryce Harper did end up besting Soto in a number of the advanced statistical categories. And, you know, while I don't think anybody was floored by Harper's season, I don't know that anybody was floored by any of these guys' seasons. Harper had a really good season. And to me, he is a worthy recipient of NL MVP. I'd love to yell and scream about how Soto deserves this. I think Soto and Harper were both deserving of this. I agree. Now, I didn't have a vote for that one. We're going to get to my Cy Young vote shortly. So I I didn't really do a full thorough breakdown the way that I would if, you know, if I was voting in it. And I can tell you my own personal experience and knowing the other writers who do this, they put a lot of time and effort in these things. This isn't just at the last second, oh, let's just put some names on a list. You really work at this. You do it right at the end of the season. They're due before the postseason begins. So for those who don't know, postseason does not matter at all. It just doesn't come out until now. I would say that based on what I had looked at, I probably would have leaned towards Harper slightly over Soto. And I think it boiled down to this. Juan Soto basically was trying to catch Bryce throughout the entire second half. Let's remember, Juan did not have a very good first half, at least by his standards. Bryce had a better first half. Bryce also had a very good second half, but Soto was gaining on him. And there was a point there in September that I thought they had kind of pulled even. Maybe Soto was even starting to make the case for himself. And unfortunately, if you remember this, the last like 10 days or so of the season, Juan finally cooled off and sort of stop that momentum going. And it's a small thing, not that this was the difference, but you know, he got his OPS over a thousand. I think I remember we made a big deal out of that the day that it happened. And then it fell back under it and he ended at 999. And again, that not that that's the deciding factor, but when Harper ends up at 1044 and Soto at 999, that's just a little bit of a differentiator there. And ultimately I think you can say that the voters decided that it was Harper's slugging which was much better than Soto's, that that was more valuable than Juan's ridiculous on-base percentage, his just ability to get on base as well as anybody in any kind of recent history has done. So I think it starts with that from a statistical standpoint. And then I think the other small little differentiator, and you can agree with this or not, was that Bryce was doing his production for a Phillies team that had a lot of issues and yet was still in the race right down to the wire. And a lot of people believe that he was as responsible as anybody for keeping the Phillies in the race, whereas Soto was doing it, especially in the second half, for a Nationals team that had sold off all the veterans and was already going through a rebuild. Now, we can debate that. I'm not somebody who says you have to play for a winning team to be MVP. I don't have a problem with a last place team getting an MVP. But when you're looking at these little things and what were the difference, I can understand why you might lean towards Harper in what his contributions to his team were in the second half of the season where they were in the race. 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, everyone has their own criteria. You, you can do this thing in a lot of different ways. Like, if you want to value defense, which I think you should, I think that takes Harper down several notches. I think that boosts the case of Soto. To me, like, if you get away from just basic stats and go to the advanced stuff, the park-adjusted stuff, like OPS+, plus, weighted runs created+, plus, that actually works in Harper's favor. Harper bested Soto in weighted runs created+, plus, bested Soto in OPS+. plus. We now have a stat that quantifies clutch win probability added. Harper bested Soto in that. So there's a very strong case to be made for Bryce Harper. I think it's interesting, though, if you do go by the most widely used version of war, the baseball reference version, Soto beats up on Harper. Like, it's actually not that close. Now, Harper bested Soto in Fangraphs version of war, but Soto bested Harper in baseball references war. So you can get really geeky with this stuff. The point, though, is you can make a case for either guy. It says a lot about Soto that he was in the mix as much as he was for this award. He, I mean, he did finish a distant number two to Harper, but he finished number two. You know, for the longest while, it felt like this was Fernando Tatis's award to lose. And with what happened, you know, he kind of faded. The Padres season faded. And so this really became a two-man race, Harper and Soto. And look, you know, people have their feelings about Bryce, but he really is in some elite company now. You win an MVP with each of two franchises. Only four other guys had ever done that. And two of the guys are tainted by PEDs, Barry Bonds and Alex Rodriguez. Frank Robinson and Jimmy Fox are the other two. That's a pretty special category to be in, to win an MVP with two different teams the way Bryce now has done. And to have done it by age 29. Yeah. Okay. He's still, as crazy as it is, he's still like just kind of wrapping up the first half of his career at this point. If he stays healthy through it all, he's still got, what, 10 more years with the contract with the Phillies. And I don't know if you watched the announcement, Bryce, with his family. He was emotional, like he was legitimately crying. And I was thinking back to 2015 when he was the unanimous MVP with the Nationals, and it wasn't that same kind of emotion. And I almost felt like maybe this one meant a little more. Maybe he's at a point in his life now at a different stage. He's a father of two now that there's a little more meaning to this. And he, he understands what this was and where this puts him in the game. Now, I get if you're a Nationals fan and you've disowned him and you're going to boo him for the rest of his life when he comes to D.C., that's fine. That's your prerogative to do that. But we think we have to acknowledge here, Bryce Harper is a really, really good player. He's not the best player in the game, but he's one of the 10 best players in the game. Maybe a little more inconsistent than some others, but the way he's going, again, health is a big part of it. He is on a Hall of Fame trajectory. Long way to go. He's not there yet, but he is on a Hall of Fame trajectory. He is a really, really good player. So is Juan Soto. Juan Soto, in the long run, may be the better player. He's only 23 right now. And in four big league seasons, he's done the following. Runner-up for Rookie of the Year to Ronald Acuna Jr., who was really good. Ninth place MVP in a year that he won the World Series. Fifth place MVP in a year that he won the batting title and led the league in all those major categories. And now runner-up for MVP. Every year Soto has played, he's been in the conversation for a major award. And I don't see that ending anytime soon. Juan Soto is going to get his MVP before it's all said and done, probably more than one. So since we last did an installment of the Nats Chat podcast, we have had not so much Juan Soto news, but a Juan Soto thing that popped up over the last week or so. So we had the general managers meetings in Carlsbad, California last week, and it was on Wednesday, November 10th that Juan Soto's agent, Scott Boris, held court as he always does at these meetings with reporters. I don't know that anyone on the planet Earth is as happy as Scott Boris is is when he holds court with reporters. He loves this. He revels in this. Him talking about how many hundreds of millions of dollars he's going to be getting all of his clients. So 
you know, he's doing this and he's got this mile wide smile on his face. And inevitably, the topic of Juan Soto comes up. And Boris gets asked about Soto potentially signing a long term contract extension with the Nats. And Scott Boris says, quote, Juan Soto wants to win. So the first thing that's going to have to happen is that, you know, he knows that he's working with an ownership that's going to annually try to, you know, compete and win. And then I think once he knows that, then he'll be ready to sit down and talk whenever they choose to talk. End quote. So he clearly puts the onus on the Nats. Mike Rizzo did a presser later that evening and essentially said, you know, our last 10 years is what I'll point at in that, you know, we're in it to win it year in and year out. But the Boras comments got a lot of attention. And I don't know about you, man, but I heard those comments and I said to myself, I'm really more pessimistic now than I think I've ever been that Soto is going to be here for the long haul. Just kind of playing this out from this standpoint. So Soto has three years left of team control. You're not going to know, no one's going to know whether the Nats are back to being good, whether they're competing annually for at least another year or two. They're not going to go bonkers this offseason. It may well be that they don't go bonkers next offseason. They're going to let this rebuild, this retool take hold. By the time they get to knowing whether they're good or not, to knowing whether the rebuild is working or not, we're going to be within a year of him hitting free agency. And by then, it's too late to sign a long-term extension prior to hitting free agency. You could argue it's already too late for him to sign a contract extension prior to free agency. And so, like, I hate to do this whole thing of like, oh, Juan's going to up and leave. And we are years away, but just thinking about what was said Thinking about the way Boris does things, I don't know, man. It's hard to have a lot of optimism that anything other than Juan Soto hitting free agency after that 2024 season is going to be what happens. Well, here's what I'd say to that. What if Boris's answer instead had been, you know, he's going to go where the most money is? If that was his answer, would you have felt better or worse if he had said that? I don't know. Maybe the same, honestly. Because I know the learners can, it's not a matter of money. They have the money. It's just a question of, are they going to want to put forth the money? And is Soto going to want to take the money from here? Maybe he wants that money from somebody else. Yeah. So in a way, I think you could look at it, though, and say, I actually think it's a better answer that he's saying Juan Soto wants to win. That's the number one priority to him. He's already been a World Series champion. He's had a taste of that. His first three years in the big leagues, he's on a team that's trying to win the first three and a half years. And now in the latter half of year four, they start a rebuild. So Yeah, I I agree with you. He's saying to the Nationals, you got to show us that you can be a winner again before we're going to really talk seriously about this. But I've been saying for a couple months now, I've said it to you on the air, I've said it to others, I've written it, that two things the Nationals, the best things they can do right now to try to make it happen. Number one, you do make him one of these gargantuan offers, one of these historic, go ahead, turn us down for $500 million, whatever the number is. Yes, they should do that. But number two, and I think it's more important, is they need to make sure that by the time we get to 2024, that this team is contending again or in the best position possible to contend again. Because in a worst case scenario, you've at least got one more shot at winning with Soto on your team. And in a best case scenario, you've got that shot and you've convinced him that this team is heading in the right direction again and that he wants to stay here. That's their path. That's going to be what it takes. I don't think it's as simple as throw all this money at him right now and he's going to agree to it. I don't think that was ever going to happen. We know how this works with Scott Boris and his clients. He points out, oh, well, you know, name me every player I've taken free agency and I'll name you one who has signed early. No, that's not true. It's about one out of every 10 of his big names. Now, Steven Strasburg was one, yes. 
But in this case, I don't think it's going to happen. So to me, the best thing they can do is try to build that winner again and do it in a responsible way. You don't try to do it sooner than, than you should. But if they do this the right way, that by 2024, hopefully they've got a, a winner again. And now Soto's looking to the same, okay, yes, this is a place I want to be. I wonder, though, if Boris said what he said because he knew it's almost like a politically correct answer because no one can really have a problem with it because, hey, Juan Soto wants to win. But Boris knows the timeline. Three years away from free agency, we're not going to know whether they're in it to win it again for at least another year or two because of the way that things are right now. Like, I think there were some definite politics behind that answer because Scott knew what he was. Scott's a very smart guy. You don't have to like him, but he knows what he's doing. And when he says that, he knows, hey, no one's going to criticize Juan if we say he wants to win. But if that's your criteria, well, we want to go where we're going to win. We're not going to know that for a few years. And by then, it's going to be too late to sign Soto to an extension. You know, there are a lot of things to this. I get that. I have to say this, though. I saw this earlier today. There was a report out of the Dominican Republic that the Tampa Bay Rays are already offering Wander Franco a massive contract extension. We don't know the exact terms, but the belief is that it's in the range of at least 10 years and the money would be between $150, $200 million. Wander Franco just had his rookie season. The way to do this, if you really want to lock these guys up, is sign them super early, like before you're even sure about the guy. Because by the time you're sure about the guy, it's probably too late. Now, occasionally you get lucky and you get a Ronald Acuna situation where, I don't know, his agent's out to lunch or whatever it was, and he signed some below market deal that like really should be torn up, okay? I mean, that, that thing's ridiculous. But by and large now, you have to be uber aggressive like after a guy's first year, at the latest his second year, because otherwise the player isn't dumb, his agent isn't dumb. They'll just take it to free agency if he's a superstar. Like what the Rays are doing with Franco, and maybe it doesn't work, but that's the way to do it. One year in, he's good. You know, you're not entirely sure maybe, but you're sure enough, you throw a ton of money at him. Like the Nats should have done this in 2018, 2019. Now, you could argue now is too late. And and certainly a year or two from now is going to be too late. And I think that's the problem. You have to be so ahead of the game now with these mega money contract extensions. And, you know, clearly I think the Nats just, it's already too late. It's not going to happen with Soto. He's not going to sign an extension here. Well, yeah. So I agree with what you're saying about the way to do it, the way the sport is right now. Yeah. It's to get it super early. You can even say that the Padres with Tatis, that that's what they did. Although I'll tell you when that contract was signed and it's huge, I forget the number now, 300 something million dollars, 13 years, I think it is. I had people telling me that night that they thought that it was a bad deal for Tatis and that he should have waited it out and played the system. The way the system is designed, the player will always make out better in the long run if they just let the system go, go through arbitration, get to free agency. And the key there is it's all about the years now. What guys don't want to do and agents don't want to do is let their clients become free agents at like 33, 34, 35. It's a terrible time. Maybe in the steroid era, that was fine. Not now. So they want their guys signed all the way through their late 30s. So that's why if we want to get back to what it would take to sign Soto, I think you've got to give him something that locks him up all the way through there. I don't think it's going to happen if you don't do that. Because like you said, Scott Boris is smart. He knows what he's doing. And look, I agree. The Nationals aren't re-signing Juan Soto this winter. And my guess is it probably wouldn't happen next winter. In all likelihood, he gets at least to his walk year and then maybe to free agency. That doesn't mean that he can't still re-sign with the Nationals. And so their best hope, like I said, it's two things. They have to make a real offer here. It can't be a lot of deferrals. It can't be a a number that looks big, but when you really break it all down, it turns out it's not as good as it sounds. It's got to be legit. It's got to be something that 
if and when he turns it down, the learners can look at the rest of the baseball world and say, hey, we did everything we could. You can't, don't put this on us. This is not our fault. Okay. So that's number one. But number two, they do have to build a winner again, because I think that's really their only hope at this, or their best hope at it, is to get that at least close enough to where he sees the bright future that he wants to stay here. Yeah. And then there's the other part of this, which I know nobody wants to hear, but if you're not going to re-sign him, then you need to trade him, okay? Because you can't risk losing him for nothing. And once it becomes clear to you that you're not going to re-sign him, whenever that is, if that happens, then you need to put on your big boy pants and trade Juan Soto. And again, nobody wants that to happen. Nobody is rooting for that to happen. I'm totally with you. The Nationals need to at least try to make him a godfather offer, $450 million, $500 million. Make him say no to that, and then others will know that you tried. But if he doesn't sign an extension, are you going to really do this of risk losing him for nothing three off seasons from now? Again, we're years away from all this, but like this is the way you need to be thinking if you're Mike Rizzo. You, You can't wait until 2024 to confront this. You need to be thinking about this now. And so that's why I think so much of this matters. I also say this too, you know, if the learners have arrived at a place to where they don't want to pay anyone 200 plus million dollars anymore, 300 plus million dollars anymore, I do think there's an argument for that of just so many of these big money contracts don't work out. Don't pay anyone that kind of money. If that's the organizational philosophy, I actually could respect that. But I think with Soto, you don't have to abide by that. You know, like you could almost make an exception for him. But I would be curious if the learners, especially off the Strasburg situation, the Corbin situation, Maybe they're just saying to themselves, you know what? It's not worth paying anyone that kind of money. It's much better to diversify our money. So, you know, I wonder about something like that. I guess we got to pace ourselves with this. We have three years of Juan Soto free agency conversation to get through. I hope that we're not spending the next three years talking about this, but I do hope that we are still talking three years from now about many topics and that we're still having this discussion. And maybe by then we'll be talking about him having a long-term extension. It would be nice. It would be nice. We're all rooting for that. And I agree. I think he's the exception to the rule here. You can argue against the other ones. I think they looked at Trey Turner and said, we're not sure. And certainly the Strasburg contract, how it's worked out, the Corbin one, even Rendon, after getting hurt and having, having a good year in Anaheim, I could see how that all maybe spooked learners a little bit. But I would also say, I think Juan Soto is an exception. You never know how it's going to work out. He's 23. God knows what's still ahead of him. But I feel like the skills that he brings to the table are going to last for a long time. And what we're seeing here is a generational player, not just a really, really good player, but a you know once in a generation type, the kind of guy that is worth taking a risk on. If and when they make him that offer, that's a scary thing to do because you're saying if he takes this and something happens and doesn't work out, oh man, this could be a disaster for us. But to me, he is the guy that you take that risk with. Yeah, and he's young enough to where if you do a double-digit year contract, it's not like that's taking him to 40. You know, that's taking him to his mid-30s, let's say, which you can live with. That's not the end of the world if you do something like that. And look, once Alex Ovechkin retires, Juan Soto, to me, is the king of D.C. sports. You know, until someone else comes along who can challenge him there, like Juan Soto is the king of sports in this city once Alex Ovechkin retires. Soto's got the charisma. He's got the championship. He's got the individual accolades. Like Soto is the guy in this city. There's definite value in something like that. Boy, what about when Montrezl Harrell wins the uh, NBA Finals for the Wizards? Oh, Montrez Harrell? Uh, he could. Let me tell you something. He's been their MVP so far this season. That's for darn sure. Coming off the bench. That guy's been outstanding. Wizards have been great so far this year, although last few games, maybe not so much. 
Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Well, your 2021 National League Cy Young Award winner is Corbin Burns from the Milwaukee Brewers. <laughs> Max does not win another National League Cy Young Award, but man, was that a battle. Corbin Burns gets the award. Burns, Zach Wheeler, and Max Scherzer. You, as a member of the BBWAA, had a vote for National League Cy Young. You outlined your thought process very well on MassInSports.com. You know, to me, there was no right answer on this. I think you can make a very compelling case for any of the three guys. How did you arrive at who you ultimately voted for? Not easily. I can tell you that. I kept going around in circles. 
So as a voter, I kind of make a point not to even start looking at this until maybe 10 days to go, two weeks to go in the season, because I don't want to go into it with a preconceived notion and start ranking guys already and then adjusting. I want to look at the full body of work and then maybe a couple quick adjustments right at the end if something happens. Well, that's kind of what happened here is that all three of those guys pitched late during the last week of the season and they all kind of struggled and it sort of changed the math a little bit. I would say when I first put it together, I felt that Scherzer was a little bit better and then he had a bad start. I want to say it was against the Rockies. And all of a sudden, I kind of went to Burns, and then he had a bad start, and all of a sudden, I went to Wheeler. And then in the end, I've, I kind of flipped back to Scherzer again. And this is probably the closest one I've had at any of the awards I voted for over the years, certainly when it came down to three candidates that any of them you can make the case for. And let's go through some of this. Burns had the ERA title barely over Scherzer. Wheeler was higher than them. Wheeler had the volume by a lot, the innings and the strikeouts, although Scherzer and Burns were real close to him in strikeouts and fewer walks. Scherzer had the lowest whip with Burns next to him, and Wheeler was higher. In that regard, Burns only gave up seven home runs all season in 167 innings. So you can keep deciding like, okay, what am I going to prioritize here? And you could find one for everybody. So there wasn't that one thing that was like, okay, that's the separator. So then I started looking even deeper and I said, okay, let's look at their second half numbers. How'd they do? Well, Scherzer in the second half, 2.21 ERA, outstanding. And that went up after those last couple of starts, it was down below two. Burns, 250, very good. Wheeler, 346, so not as good, although he had a great September, 147 ERA in September. Then the other thing I looked at, and I don't know if I've ever looked at this in particular before, but I decided to in this case, I looked at how they did against the teams that made the playoffs. I thought, okay, did somebody face them more? Had they had more success against them? And this may have ultimately been like that little thing that made the difference for me. Max Scherzer, 10 starts against playoff teams, 169 ERA. That's outstanding. Zach Wheeler, 13 starts. We had more of them and a 199 ERA, which is outstanding, but not as good as Scherzer. Corbin Burns, only eight starts against playoff teams and the ERA 287. That's very good, but it's not 169. And so, I mean, we're nitpicking here, but when it's that close, you got to go with something. And so to me, I went slightly with Scherzer one. I wanted to put Wheeler two because I thought the volume of his work made five more starts than Burns, almost 50 more innings than him. I thought that was valuable. I thought that was important that he did that. So I put him second and I put Burns third. Now, obviously Burns won it, but this was so close. You could have gone any way and I wouldn't have had fault if any of them had won it. Yeah, I think Corbin Burns is a fascinating case study in what matters more, run prevention slash like inning per inning excellence or volume. Because what works against Burns is the workload, which wasn't overly impressive. Corbin Burns only threw 167 innings, and he made 28 starts. But the way that Craig Council manages that Brewers pitching staff, you don't last long, man. It's, you know, it's basically five and dive, brother, and get out, and we're going to the bullpen. And so if you go by, like, ERA+, plus strikeouts per nine innings, FIP, Corbin Burns blows away everybody. He's better than everybody in those things. But only through 167 innings. So you say, okay, would you rather lessen the inning per inning excellence but get much more volume from, say, a Scherzer or a Zach Wheeler? Wheeler threw 213 into third innings. Corbin threw 167. So I think it's a really interesting conversation of like, would you rather the guy who's just better start in, start out, or the guy who gives you so much more workload? You know, Zach Wheeler ended up leading all of the National League in war, position players, pitchers, et cetera, because of that volume of work. And 
there's a lot of value in that. So, you know, again, it, it's tomato, tomato. It's, it's what you personally value. That's why I think you could have gone with any of the three. But, you know, it's funny. I think now with the way a lot of teams handle pitchers, especially analytically inclined teams like the Brewers, you're going to have this where you're going to have Cy Young candidates and, you know, they don't even get to 170 innings. I mean, that was like unthinkable back in the day. And now it's kind of like, yeah, that's kind of the way that it is. I mean, never mind 200 innings, which became the new standard years ago. Now it's almost like 175 innings is the new standard for a starting pitcher having a season in which he gives you a bunch of innings. Yeah, and I think I saw the 167 by Burns is the lowest total ever for a Cy Young winner for a starting pitcher. Obviously, there have been some relievers who've won it. Now, is it his fault that his manager pulls him? He only threw 100 pitches, I think, seven times this year, top the 100 pitch mark. So, But that's a manager's decision. It's not his fault. I think you could argue that Corbin Burns was the most dominant starter this year, but that at some point you say, I do need a little bit more. And I think there is value, as we've seen. Look at the Nationals when they were at their best. When you have starters that can go that deep, it makes a difference, not just in that night's game, but the next night and et cetera, et cetera, moving on down the road. So I do think there is still value in the volume. And it's taking us to a little bit of the extreme, but if we're going to reward the rate stats, essentially is what we're saying, which is what Burns had, then why not Jacob deGrom, who had way better rate stats, but way fewer numbers because he got hurt. So where's the line? And, And that's the thing. There is no hard line of number of innings, number of starts. It's just up to you to look at it and decide, do I feel like this is enough? Do I wish he had a little bit more? And let's compare them side by side. But it's a fascinating discussion and it's probably here to stay because this is the future of pitching. It's going to be more of this in the future, I think. Yeah, just to go back to the baseball reference war real quick, Zach Wheeler, 7.6 war, Corbin Burns, 5.6. Two full wins above replacement better was Wheeler versus Burns. That's significant. That's not nothing. Like, with war, if you're better than by like 0.1, 0.2, okay, whatever. If it's two full wins above replacement that you're better, I think that tells you about the value that Zach Wheeler brought. So yeah, interesting conversation. And then of course, in the American League, the former Nationals farmhand, Robbie Ray, winning American League Cy Young. I mean, look, he was in the National System years ago. He's part of the Doug Fister trade. But you know, I think it's interesting with Ray because I had this thought when he won it. Robbie Ray is another one of these guys who wasn't great from the get-go. And it's been kind of this up-and-down career. He's had some really good seasons. He's had some bad seasons, but it all clicked for him with Toronto this past season. And so, man, every time I think about, you know, Eric Fetty or Joe Ross or any one of these many Nationals pitchers who, like, make you want to scream with the inconsistency, and every year we kind of have the same conversations with them, you're like, well, you know, for some guys, it just takes a while. And, you know, Robbie Ray, I mean, Robbie Ray in 2020 had an ERA of almost seven. Robbie Ray in 2019 had an ERA well above four. Robbie Ray in 2016 had an ERA of 4.9. Here he is winning the American League Cy Young Award. You know, winning it for a team in Toronto that competes in a division that is brutal to pitchers, the American League East. So I don't know, man. Maybe we just need to be more patient with some of these guys. But uh, good for Robbie Ray for winning some hardware. Well, it is a good reminder that, yeah, you do have to be patient sometimes. Now, what I will say is even when he was struggling a lot of those years, some of them were in Arizona. He went to Detroit first, then Arizona. He's bounced around quite a bit, but he always had a high strikeout total or high strikeout rate. And that was, I think, the thing that a lot of baseball people saw and said, okay, there's real potential there because of that. He just had to limit the walks and and the hits, but he had the stuff to strike batters out. And look, 
I don't think any Nationals fan can honestly say that they made a mistake letting him go. He was a single A pitcher at that time. Doug Fister was fantastic for them in uh, 2014 and winning the NL East. And like we said, Ray has taken a long time in a circuitous path to get this point. And I remember that night of that trade was three for one. They got Fister. They traded Robbie Ray, Ian Kroll, a lefty. And the guy who fans were most upset about losing was Steve Lombardozzi, whose career did not really pan out much after that. Nobody knew who Robbie Ray was. He was, a, like I said, a single-A pitcher who'd been drafted a few years earlier. It's interesting with Fister. So he was great in 14. He was really bad in 2015, though. Yes. You know, the Nats really only got one good season out of Doug Fister. And when it went, it went. I remember they moved him to the bullpen. He couldn't strike anybody out. I mean, it, it got ugly in that summer of 2015 for Doug Fister, but he was really good in 2014, which you could argue is the best of the Nats teams. Obviously didn't do the best, but that was a really good Nationals team in 2014. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflicts. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of legal headhunters working for you. And that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. There goes Junior, and the throw by Molina is not going to get him. So Eric Young Jr. swipes his fourth base of the year. Well, something else that's been happening since we last did an installment of the Nats Chat podcast, more changes to the Nationals organizationally. And, you know, it's tricky with this stuff because it involves a lot of names that most people have never heard. And we're not going to sit here and pretend like we know, well, this guy is an upgrade over that guy. Like, we don't really know. But we do know this. There's a lot that's been happening with the Nationals and off the very bad 2021 season, off the 97 loss season, off what we all knew to be the case, which was the Nationals needed to get better at player development. Their player development really had flopped in recent years. The Nationals are doing things here. The Nats this past Tuesday, November 16th, promoted John Watson to director of player development. He had spent the previous five seasons as a special assistant to president of baseball operations and general manager Mike Rizzo. We have had off the shuffling of Davey Martinez's major league coaching staff, the moving of Bob Henley and Randy Knorr to player development. Those guys now are going to be working 
in conjunction with Sam Naren in terms of grooming Nationals minor league players. That was something that was anticipated when we learned that Henley and Knorr were out, but it's now officially known. Uh, Henley is the organization's new field coordinator. Knorr is the organization's new catching coordinator. Naren is the organization's new pitching coordinator. The Nationals have a new man in charge of analytics. Lee Mendelowitz was promoted to Senior Director of Baseball Research and Development. He's been with the Nats for years. He replaces Sam Madri Cohen, who left on his own accord at the end of this past season. So again, we're not going to sit here and pretend like we know every little thing about all these guys. But Mark, it's impossible to ignore all this stuff. Things are changing. Things are evolving. And the bottom line is, I think the Nationals recognize we have faltered when it comes to player development, and we need to do a better job. Yeah. So you heard Mike Rizzo at the end of the season talk about a need to do things a little differently, that there were going to be some changes. You know, our goal is to you know be better uh, next year, give ourselves a chance to win. And we've seen that. Now, I think what is kind of interesting to me is that so far, at least, there could be more coming. We don't know. But so far, you're talking about people who are already in the organization. And so it's more of a shuffling of roles keeping the same people and putting them in different spots. I think it's a little interesting. I thought maybe there'd be some more new blood coming in from the outside somewhere. And again, that may still happen. We don't really know the final roster here for the for the front office. So I thought that was a little interesting. But what I'll say about DeJohn Watson is that prior to coming here to DC, his background was in player development, including a very long stint as the Dodgers, essentially their farm director. And that's an organization that has done a phenomenal job for many years now at developing players, not just the blue chip first round picks, but getting a lot out of later round picks. And that's something the Nationals have to be better at. So I think that seems like a good fit based on his background. He also was in Arizona in a similar role for a few years before he came here. So even though he is coming from within the organization, his background is in this. And I think that was maybe a calculated move there to put him in charge of that. I thought that was an interesting move. I like the fact that you have now some former big league coaches running the minor league, being the coordinators in the minor leagues. Randy Norm, Bob Henley are very good at those things. Institutional knowledge having been in the organization since they got here in 2005, even further back in uh, Randy Norm's case. So I think that's something else they really need to do is have some continuity in development and, and instruction so that when you're drafted by the Nationals, you start playing in their minor league system, you're doing the same thing the same way all the way up until you get to the big leagues. So I think that's a good thing to have them. And then I don't know if you wanted to get into the coaching staff, a couple other additions there. They announced Eric Young Jr. as the first base coach and Gary DiCarcina as the new third base coach. With Eric Young Jr. in particular, I think that was a calculated move. And I mentioned last time we knew they were making a change, but we didn't know who. And I said, don't be surprised if they try to get someone who can coach outfield defense and if they try to get somebody who can coach base running. That's Eric Young Jr. That's what he was as a player. He's only 36. He's really young. It's his first big league coaching job. But he was an outfielder, one of the fastest in baseball. His dad, Eric Young Sr., is a longtime coach now for the world champion Atlanta Braves. So I think that's a good move to have somebody specifically to work on a couple of problem areas for the team, especially the base running part that Randy Nor. Love the guy, but that's not his background. He's a former catcher. So I like the fact they brought in somebody who can really focus on base running for them. Yeah, the Nats also have moved Henry Blanco to the role of catching and strategy coach, which I think is interesting. So Blanco had been the Nats bullpen coach the last four seasons. And prior to that, he worked with Davey Martinez on the Chicago Cubs as their quality assurance coach for three seasons. So this coming season will be Henry Blanco's eighth consecutive season 
working with Davey. And I think the two things interesting about that, A, the role of catching coach has maybe never mattered more with Kbert Ruiz, Riley Adams, and Tres Pereira. So that is far from a throwaway position at this point. But also strategy coach, you know, is Blanco, I, I don't know if he's in on analytics or whatever, but is Blanco going to be assisting Davey with in-game strategy? Obviously, with Blanco no longer being the bullpen coach, he's not in the bullpen, right? So in theory, he's in the dugout with Davey. Now, Davey still has a bench coach, but maybe Blanco does some of those more traditional bench coach duties in serving as strategy coach. I guess we'll have to see what the job entails, but I thought that that was notable, Henry Blanco being named catching and strategy coach. Yeah, I agree. I think probably going to be like a second bench coach. And Henry, for those who weren't paying attention the second half of the year, actually spent a decent amount of the second half in the dugout, filling in when Tim Bogar had to have back surgery at one point. And he also was third base coach for a little while. So you could sort of already see that happening to move him into the dugout during games to have more of a say on the ins and outs. The bullpen coach is only so much you can do from out there. You're you're making sure the guys are ready. You're communicating with the dugout about who's warmed up, who needs this much time, all that kind of stuff. When you're in the dugout, you're much more involved every decision. So I think it's another set of ears and eyes who can now make some recommendations in real time to Davey and allow him to work directly with those catchers. He was really important, like you said, working with Ruiz and with Riley Adams down the stretch. Well, if there's things going on during a game and he's out in the bullpen, he can't work with them. He can't talk to them. So now he's seeing things that they're doing during a game and can talk to them. So I thought that was a very strategic move on their part. And then they replaced him with Ricky Bonus, the former Brewers pitcher, is now going to be the new bullpen coach. Yeah, this stuff to me matters more than anything right now. Like the Soto stuff is sexy, but what really matters is that the Nationals get back to being in a position from which they're creating more Juan Sotos, you know, because if you're where they have been the last few years, which is you're not churning out new stars, it doesn't matter if you have Juan Soto or not, okay? You're not going to be good. One player in baseball can only do so much. So they really do have to get back to drafting well, developing well, and having guys who get better, not worse. That's the other part of this. The Victor Robleses and the Carter Keybooms and the Eric Fettys and these guys who get worse with the Nats, not better. That's a problem. That's something that they really have to address. And, you know, Mike Rizzo obviously has a lengthy leash because he's been here for a while. He's had a lot of success. But this is phase one of the rebuild here, right? These next few years. You know, if this doesn't go so well, the next round of changes aren't just going to be some shuffling of in-house people. You know, there may be some real significant changes here. And so, you know, not to say that like Rizzo's job is on the line this season or anything like that, but at some point, you know, there are going to be some questions here about like, how come the drafting has gone so poorly? How come the player development has gone so poorly? And they really need to fix this. Like, this is a really big deal that they attack this. So hopefully what they're doing this offseason leads to some positive outcomes. We'll see. They need to get this right. The whole thing. They need to get this right. If it goes right, then three years from now, we're talking about a perennial contender again. If it doesn't go right, it can set you back for a long, long time. And all of a sudden, you're not one of the premier franchises in baseball anymore. A lot of teams do this. They say we're going to rebuild. Some of them are successful at it. Others are stuck in it for a long time. And that's where you got to get this right from the get-go. And we'll see. We'll talk a year from now and see how it went. 
Yeah, especially when you are an older school team, right? You're not in on analytics the way that other teams are. Not to say that the Nationals don't have an analytics department or anything like that, but like there are degrees to which you are in on it. The Nats are not known to be a team that is as in on that stuff as other teams. And so if you're going to do things in the quote unquote old school way, I think people look at that and say, all right, but it better work because if it doesn't, there may be some real changes here. You know, like this guy to John Watson, impressive background. But, you know, he's not from the new school. He's in his 50s. He's been around baseball for almost 40 years. So, okay, he's a Rizzo guy, but let's see what he does. But if it doesn't go well, then I think people are going to say, well, maybe it's time we revamp this whole thing and we get in on the new school way of doing things. So we'll see. Hope it works. Really do hope that it works. I also hope that we have a season in 2022. So the current collective bargaining agreement is due to expire essentially at midnight, December 1st, going into December 2nd. Nobody and I mean nobody, has any optimism that we're not going to have a lockout of at least some length. The question is, does the lockout last, you know, a month, two months? Does it last, you know, six months, eight months? And nobody can be sure of that. You know, I hate that it's like this. I hate that the sport has to go through something like this again. As many problems as baseball has had from a labor relations standpoint, it's not since the 94-95 strike that we've had a labor stoppage. It may not feel like that, but that is the case. Every time we've come close The two sides have worked out a deal. It doesn't feel like a deal is going to be worked out. It feels like we're going to have a lockout. And the question just becomes, how long does the lockout last for? But this offseason, it feels like is about to be put on pause, which is a real shame. This is not what the sport needs, but it feels like this is inevitable at this point. Yeah, I agree. I've felt this way for a while. This thing has been a long time coming. We've talked about this in passing over the last year, but the relationship between owners and players has been really at its lowest point since the 94 strike. It's been going on for a couple of years, building and building. You saw some hints of this last year during the pandemic shutdown when it came time to figure out how and when are we going to start the season, how many games are we going to play, and how much money are the players going to be paid to play those games. And you saw a lot of nasty stuff coming out at a time when we all thought if ever there's an opportunity for these two sides to come together for the good of the country or the sport or whatever you want to call it, that that would be it. And it did not go that way at all. And so that was really a precursor to what we're about to go through. There is a lot of lingering resentment and distrust on the two sides, the kind that we have not had in a long time. So all along, knowing that the deadline, the CBA would expire December 1st, I've been thinking to myself, that's a bad day for it to come to an end. The reason being, When do these guys get anything done? When they're facing a hard deadline with real consequences. If it's in season or if it's right approaching spring training, there are consequences. Now you're risking losing games for the owners and you're risking losing salary for the players. December 1st is not that. You've got time. So whether they consciously or subconsciously feel this way, it seems pretty obvious to me that they're not going to feel that true pressure to get a deal done until spring training is getting around the corner. And so my fear, my my prediction and my fear is that we're looking at a lockout in December and into January. And then as February is approaching, they're finally going to realize, okay, we're getting antsy now. Players want to sign contracts. Teams want to know that they're going to play all their games, not have to delay the season at all. And that there could be a deal done and a mad scramble to sign free agents, get teams together, leading into pitchers and catchers reporting. I hope that's not the case. I hope they come to something before that. But my hunch is that it's that. Now, I will also say, I don't think, I really don't think it will drag on long enough 
to delay anything, to lose games. I do think both sides understand the consequences of that and how bad that would be for the sport. The best thing, if you want to call that about the 94 strike, is that it was so damaging that everybody kind of understood we can't ever let that happen again. So I hope, and I believe, that they understand that. And so that gives them that window now until we're getting closer to spring training where it does start impacting games. My hope would be that they do get something done before that. Yeah, and I also hope that they address some of the real issues with the sport. I hope this isn't a Band-Aid CBA. I hope this is a CBA that gets to the crux of some of the real problems, things like pace of play, things like time of game. You know, from a player standpoint, clearly there's an issue right now of when players hit free agency. It doesn't work well for the players. And look, I don't lose sleep over that, but... I mean, if you're going to be fair about this, maybe there is something we can do about the service time thing to where players aren't hitting free agencies or going into their 30s, which right now just feels like the worst thing possible for the players. So there are some things that probably need to be fundamentally altered. So I hope there is some real change and uh, maybe there can be. But man, it just feels so toxic between the two sides. And, um, you know, we'll see. You know, we're going to have a lockout. I think that's for sure. And like you said, it's just a matter of like how long does a thing go for? Did you, by the way, see the report from Ken Rosenthal, the athletic within the last, I don't know, week or so that there was a proposal from MLB and the proposal contained the same threshold for free agency qualifications. So it's a total non-starter for the players. But the proposal included altering the arbitration system to where arbitration would be based on Fangraph's war that instead of these old school ways of determining arbitration figures, and by the way, the arbitration process is antiquated, so it does need a revamping. But I thought that was really interesting that they would actually use a version of war to determine arbitration numbers. Maybe there's something to that, but I got a kick out of that. Yeah, I did see it. And the reaction from almost everybody in the baseball world was no chance. (laughs) They are never going for that one. That is not going to happen. That might just be MLB throwing something out that they knew wouldn't be accepted so they can come back with something a little lesser, whatever that might be, that maybe it'll look better in comparison. But we may have robot umpires here before long. We're not going to have robot salaries. <laughs> the players are not going to go for a computer deciding their salaries moving forward. They're going to do everything they can to probably keep arbitration in some capacity. I think it's fascinating. It's a tricky thing. Do you want to let free agency start sooner? less than six years. I think the player's main argument, and and I agree with them on this, is that right now the system is structured so that you're earning your most money the older you get. And a player's prime is really in their late 20s. And so why not have a system that allows them to be paid more at that time? And I almost think that owners would go for that as well, that you don't want to overpay guys who are past their prime. You want to pay them when they're at their best. So how do you do that without the players giving up too much without the owners letting them start players leave in three or four years. I'm not sure what the answer to that is. I hope some smart people on both sides can figure that one out. Yeah. I mean, because in some ways it's really falling into the owner's hands because for years the players had the upper hand because they were getting the big money contracts. And, you know, when they were all roided up, it didn't matter. They were performing late into their 30s. But as that dissipated, owners finally smartened up in recent years and said, we're not paying guys big money contracts anymore. And so we saw things like Bryce Harper go into free agency and ultimately have like three, maybe four at most legitimate suitors. Owners are like, we don't need to pay these guys big money in free agency. We have them under team control for six years. We get the best out of them in their prime years and we let somebody else overpay them. So it's like now that it finally works in the club's favor again, they're going to have to give that up. But if you're if you're the players, you 100% have got to try to alter 
alter this thing because it's not working well for you. So we shall see. Billionaires fighting with millionaires. It is a time-honored tradition. Always a lot of public sympathy when those are the two involved. Absolutely, especially with what's going on with our economy right now. So keep at it, guys. Knock yourselves out. Well, we always love hearing from you. So you tell us what you think. You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can always email the podcast as well, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure you are a subscriber to the Nats Chat Podcast. Like we've said with these off-season episodes, we're going to be doing them. We don't know exactly when we're doing them, so you never miss an episode if you subscribe. The episode will go right to your phone or your tablet, so go ahead and subscribe to the Nats Chat Podcast. Also, if you haven't yet given the podcast a five-star rating, please do that, and please write like a one or two-sentence review saying how much you like the podcast. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to Nats Chat Podcast dot square dot site. Well, Mark, I don't know if MLB will be functioning or not the next time we do one of these pods, but uh, <laughs> we'll just hope for the best. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. I hope that there is some actual baseball news for us to discuss on our next one. My biggest fear is a dead silent winter with nothing going on. We just went through a lot of nothing last year. I don't want to go through that again. I want action. I want news. So let's hope one way or another that there is enough to talk about next time we do this. A show about nothing, a pot about nothing. That may be what this ends up being. Who the heck knows? For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Smith, the lefty sets. Runners lead first and second to pitch. Swing it away, driving to center field, a base hit. Robles to third, it gets by, punch into the wall. Robles coming in to score. And an opening day, Curly W is in the books. They're mobbing one Soto out there, second base. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com